Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the Q3 2020 AGF Management Limited Earnings Call. My name is Richard and I'll be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. During the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Adrian Basaraba. Mr. Basaraba, you may begin. Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. I'm Adrian Basarab, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of AGF Management Limited. Today, we'll be discussing the financial results for the third quarter of fiscal 2020. Slides supporting today's call and webcast can be found in the Investor Relations section of AGF.com. Also speaking today will be Kevin McCready, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. For the live question and answer period with investment analysts following the presentation, Judy Goldring, President and Head of Global Distribution, Will also be available to address your questions. Turning to slide four, I'll provide an agenda for today's call. We will discuss the highlights of Q3 2020, provide an update on the key segments of our business, review our financial results, discuss our capital and liquidity position, and finally close by outlining our focus for the remainder of 2020. After the prepared remarks, we'll be happy to take questions. And with that, I'll now turn the call over to Kevin. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. On September 1st, the merger between Smith & Williamson and Tilney to create one of the UK's leading integrated wealth management and professional services groups closed. Completing this transaction, particularly in the current environment, is a notable achievement and marks an important step forward. AGF received net cash proceeds of $277 million and will recognize a gain of approximately $96 million next quarter. With our strong balance sheet and liquidity, we are well positioned to return value to shareholders, service debt repayment, and pursue growth initiatives. We have announced today our intention to launch a substantial issuer bid, or SIB. Our board has authorized AGF to use up to $40 million of the SNW proceeds to return capital to our Class B shareholders through the SIB. Subject to market and other conditions, we expect the terms of the SIB to be finalized by month end and the SIB to be completed by the end of November. Also earlier today, we announced as we will be expanding our partnership with SAF Group, one of Canada's leading alternative providers. In the coming months, AGF and SAF Group will work together to launch a series of innovative private credit products for institutional and high net worth investors. In addition, we have the right to increase our ownership interest in the management fee partnerships of select SAF Group funds at any time in a 12-month period. The option agreement creates a path toward forming an internal private credit capability and positions us to capitalize on the expected growth in private debt investments. Adrian will provide more color on this initiative later in the call. We view alternatives as a spectrum, ranging from liquid alternatives at one end to private alternatives at the other. Our liquid alternative funds, which include long-short, market-neutral, and derivative-based strategies have track records dating back to 2011. Our private alternatives business has strong capabilities in private infrastructure and private credit. Focused on driving growth 
in our alternatives business, we have established the AGF Alternatives Advisory Committee to provide strategic insight and advice to the executive management team. The committee will be compromised of individuals who have made a significant impact in an investment or leadership role in organizations noteworthy for their success in the alternative sector. I'm excited to announce Ron Mock, former president and CEO at the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and Michael Latimer, former president and CEO of OMERS, have joined the newly established Alternatives Advisory Board. To have these two tenured industry leaders with substantial knowledge and experience at the table with us will be invaluable as we seek to deploy capital for our growth initiatives and look to grow our alternatives capabilities and partnerships. We recently established AGF Wave Asset Management, Inc., a new joint venture with Wavefront Global Asset Management Corporation that will provide asset management services and products in China and South Korea. The new entity will combine AGF's investment capabilities and global brand strength with Wavefront's existing distribution capabilities in China and South Korea. AGF will gain direct access to these rapidly growing markets by leveraging the robust distribution channels and sales capabilities of Wavefront's local strategic partners. In terms of other highlights for the quarter, AGF is committed to responsible and sustainable investing practices across the organization. We are a signatory to the United Nations Supported Principles for Responsible Investment, or UNPRI. In our 2020 assessment report, AGF either maintained or exceeded the median score in all six modules. We will be launching two ETFs and two mutual funds next month to expand the distribution reach of our strategies through a variety of investment vehicles. We recognize that our clients want choice in the way they access our strategies to best suit their respective business models and investor portfolios. We reported adjusted diluted EPS of $0.19 a share for the current quarter, which is 6% higher than the third quarter of last year. We remain on track to meet our SG&A guidance of $180 million, with the potential for further savings due to additional expense efficiencies. The board confirmed a quarterly dividend of $0.08 per share for the third quarter. Starting on slide six, we will provide updates on our business performance. On this slide, we break down our total AUM and the categories disclosed in our MD&A and show comparisons to the prior year. AUM ended the quarter at $37 billion. Mutual fund AUM increased by 2%. I'll provide more color on our fund business in a moment. Institutional subadvisory and ETF AUM decreased compared to prior year, mainly due to the redemptions that we addressed in previous quarters. At the end of Q3, we have a committed sales of approximately $125 million, including an allocation from an existing strategic partner. With the COVID-19 lockdown now past the six-month mark, most institutions have adapted to the new normal, and many are assessing the impact of the recent market volatility on their portfolios. Not surprisingly, we have seen an increase in RFP and RFI activity, with strong interest in several of our global strategies. Our global sustainable growth equity strategy is one of the longest tenured in Canada, and performance has been stellar, exceeding the benchmark by well over 300 basis points on a one-, three-, and five-year basis. We're seeing appetite for this strategy from investors globally. Under Regina Chi's leadership, performance for our emerging markets equity strategy has also improved and will approach the three-year mark this fall, which is key for the institutional channel. For our ETF business, our suite of liquid alternative funds continues to attract interest. Our market-neutral anti-beta strategy has the potential to generate positive returns regardless of the direction of general market, 
as amply demonstrated during the market correction in March. This strategy has gained over $100 million in AUM this quarter. As COVID-19 continues to cast uncertainty over markets, we have seen interest in this strategy from both retail and institutional investors in the U.S. and in Canada who are looking for strategic or tactical hedges for their equity portfolio. Finally, AGF was recently nominated for two ETF Express U.S. awards, Best Smart Beta ETF Issuer and Best Thematic ETF Issuer. Winners will be announced in October. Our private alternatives AUM was $2.8 billion at the end of the quarter, which is solid progress toward our goal of reaching $5 billion by 2022. Turning to slide 7, I'll provide some detail on the mutual fund business. Aided by the market recovery since March, the Canadian mutual fund industry bounced back in our latest fiscal quarter, reporting net sales of $10.8 billion, compared to net sales of $3.5 billion for the same period last year. Similar to industry trends, AGF's retail mutual fund business also demonstrated encouraging results, reporting net redemptions of $4 million in the quarter, compared to net redemptions of $103 million in Q3 of last year. Within the quarter, in July, we recorded net sales of $11 million, and August was essentially flat. We are also seeing days of positive net sales in September. To maintain momentum for our retail business, which includes both mutual funds and ETFs, we will be launching several new funds next month as we look to expand the distribution reach of our products. Included in the launches are the mutual fund version of AGFIQ Global Income ETF portfolio, which won a fund grade A-plus award last year, and the ETF version of our Global Sustainable Growth Equity Fund. Retail demand for ESG is quickly gaining pace, and as mentioned earlier, performance for our Global Sustainable Growth Equity Strategy has been stellar. Before I return the call back to Adrian, I want to give a quick update on performance. AGF measures mutual fund performance by comparing gross returns before fees relative to peers within the same category, with the first percentile being the best possible performance. We target an average percentile ranking versus peers of 50% over one year and 40% over three years. For our mutual funds, our average percentile ranking over the past one and three years improved from 49% and 56% respectively at the end of Q2 to 42% and 51% respectively at the end of Q3. In the last several years, we have invested heavily in our global investment capabilities, which is reflected in our performance figures. Our top performing funds within the first quartile include Global Convertible Bond, Global Select, Global Sustainable Growth Equity, U.S. Small Mid-Cap Equities, and our large American Growth Fund, just to name a few. As investors continue to move away from domestic strategies toward global and international opportunities, AGF is well positioned to capture this trend. With respect to our ETFs, 83% of our Canadian-listed ETFs have outperformed their peers year-to-date, and 67% of our U.S.-listed ETFs have outperformed their peers year-to-date. With that, I will turn the call back over to Adrian. Thank you, Kevin. Slide 8 reflects a summary of our financial results for the third quarter with sequential quarter and year-over-year comparisons. For ease of comparison, we have included adjusted numbers and restated prior period results for IFRS 16 throughout the remainder of this presentation. We've also included a section of the table showing results excluding Smith & Williamson. During the quarter, we recorded $8.8 million of dividend income from Smith & Williamson. This compares to the $5.8 million of equity income recorded in Q3 2019. We recorded no income from Smith & Williamson in Q2. 
excluding Smith & Williamson from current and prior period results, EBITDA before commissions for the current quarter is $21.3 million, which is comparable to Q2 2020. Markets recovered since last quarter, but results were impacted by higher SG&A, primarily due to an increase in stock-based compensation relating to an increase in our share price during the quarter. Compared to prior year, EBITDA before commissions was $3.1 million lower due to lower earnings from our wealth management business and private LP investments. Last quarter, we indicated that we could see further savings of up to $5 million compared to our 2020 SG&A guidance of $180 million. We remain comfortable with that position as we continue to see a reduction in activities, including meals and entertainment, due to COVID-19. Turning to slide 9, I'll walk you through the yield on our business in terms of basis points. This slide shows our revenue, operating expenses, and EBITDA before commissions as a percentage of average AUM on the current quarter as well as trailing 12-month view. Note that AUM and related results from Smith & Williamson, the private alts business, one-time items, and other income are excluded. The Q3 revenue yield is 111 basis points, which is one BIPs higher than the trailing 12 months. The increase is mainly due to a shift toward our mutual fund products with relatively higher fees. Q3 SG&A as a percentage of AUM was 54 basis points, which is three basis points higher compared to the trailing 12 months. The increase in SG&A basis points is due to the increased share price as previously mentioned. This resulted in an EBITDA yield of 22 basis points. Turning to slide 10, I'll discuss free cash flow and capital uses. This slide represents the last five quarters of consolidated free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis, as shown by the orange bars on the chart. The black line represents the percentage of free cash flow that was paid out as a dividend. Our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $55 million, and our dividend payout ratio was 45%. Excluding Smith & Williamson dividends, our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $34 million, and dividend payout ratio was 72%. This is an acceptable payout and obviously does not include incremental free cash flow from reinvested proceeds. As we have discussed on previous calls, we intend to use the $277 million from the sale of Smith & Williamson in a balanced way, including debt reduction, return to shareholders, and investing in the business to generate growth. We have fully repaid our long-term credit facility, which stood at $195 million at the end of the quarter. During the quarter, we also repurchased a million shares for total consideration of $5.1 million. As Kevin mentioned earlier, we'll be launching a substantial issuer bid of up to $40 million to return capital to shareholders. Given our current share price, we believe that buying back our own shares is an attractive option. In addition to the progress on the first two capital objectives, we also announced an investment for growth with our expanded partnership with Staff Group. This is an opportune time to launch a private credit fund. The disruption caused by COVID-19 has created unique borrowing needs from companies, and traditional lenders to shore up credit losses have reduced lending to certain companies and industries. We last saw this during the 2008 global financial crisis, but funds launched shortly afterward tended to have strong returns and form the basis for future fund launches. Similarly, post-COVID-19 has created another once-in-a-decade opportunity to invest in private loans, particularly with interest rates going even lower for longer. Together with Staff Group, we will be launching a direct lending private credit strategy aimed at institutional and high-net-worth investors later this year. Subsequently, we will work on introducing market offerings with varying liquidity and return profiles, which are designed to meet the needs of a wider audience and different segments of the investor market. 
partnership has committed $50 million in capital to the new funds. As part of the agreement, AGF has the right to acquire additional staff ownership interests anytime in a 12-month period. The option arrangement creates a path for AGF to establish a leading internal private credit capability. When the option is exercised, AGF will make a more substantial commitment to the private credit business, and further details and terms will be disclosed at that time. An objective for our private alternatives business since its inception back in 2014 has been to generate recurring income, most importantly, management fee profits for our shareholders. This is more consistent and predictable than earnings from our LP investments, which can be lumpy. Back in 2014, Recall that we committed $50 million to SAF-1, which was the inaugural SAF fund in partnership with AGF. This fund has produced gross IRRs in excess of our 12% hurdle. It's also returned substantially all of AGF's capital invested when considering LP and GP ownership distributions along with monetizations. In partnership with SAF Group, we'll be able to accelerate this objective while also delivering against the needs of our clients who are demanding access to uncorrelated asset classes in the face of changing market dynamics. Turning to slide 11, let's turn it over to Kevin to wrap up today's call. Thanks, Adrian. Q3 was a solid quarter. Despite the challenges posed by COVID-19, we continue to make progress against our stated objectives. With the merger of Smith & Williamson and Tilney now complete, we are focused on deploying the proceeds to return capital to shareholders and invest in growth initiatives. Our retail and institutional distribution teams remain focused on driving the organization to sustainable net inflows. We are well positioned to capture flows given our strong capabilities in global, ESG, quantitative, and alternative investments. We remain on track to meet our 2020 SG&A guidance with the potential for further savings due to the impact of COVID-19. Along those lines, I'd like to reiterate our strategic priorities, which are to one, deliver consistent and repeatable investment performance. Second, drive the organization to sustainable net inflows. Third, position the firm to reach $5 billion in private alternative assets by 2022. And finally, meet our expense guidance while continuing to invest in key growth areas. I want to thank everyone on the AGF team for all of their hard work in these challenging times. We will now take your questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, for any questions on the line, that's star, then 1 on your touchtone phone. And our first question on the line comes from Mr. Gary Ho from Desjardins. Please go ahead. Thanks, and uh, good morning. Maybe just to start off on the capital deployment side, um, Adrian, you mentioned, you know, you pay down debt, you announced the SIB. I'm just curious on the third pillar here, which is, you know, your growth initiatives. How should we think about, you know, when you look at possible uh, initiatives or transactions, you know, what's the return profile um, you're looking for, maybe IRR uh, expectations? Maybe share it with us, um, uh, you know, are you still favoring the JV structure uh, looks that way with the AGF wave announcement recently? Yeah, thanks for the question, Gary. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we when we look at acquisitions, um, we have an absolute minimum uh, expected IRR of 12%. That's, you know, our approximate cost of capital. We target deals that are, uh, you know, much higher than that just because we want to make sure that we, um, you know, we're able to, to meet that return hurdle. And uh, as far as the structure of the deals, I think we've said on previous calls that, you know, 
we're not looking to do transformational type deals. Um, we like the idea of seeding capabilities, you know, using our capital to get funds off the ground. We've done that successfully now with, um, you know, a number of uh, private asset funds. And I think this is a, a good example uh, that we're announcing today where it's not, um, you know, it's not, it's not purchasing a firm to do a transformation, transformational kind of deal. It's more, more so using our capital to, uh, to see capabilities and set the organization up for growth. Hey, hey, Gary, this is Kevin, if I can follow on that, which is, you know, we've always said it's going to be a balanced approach. So, you know, to the buyback, uh, paying down the debt, and then, you know, our future. And, you know, what, what we've talked about is this, this is going to take us, you know, 18 to 24 months to deploy it prudently, but on strategy, and these are the first two legs of that. We think the alternatives component of our business for all investors is going to be larger in the future, uh, and it will obviously round out and complement um, our existing businesses. So, you know, it's going to take us a bit, but it's going to be a disciplined approach to it. Yeah, and then on the private alt side, uh, I know you're still targeting that $5 billion by 2022 versus $2.8 billion today. Can you help, can help us connect you know, the $2.2 billion delta? How much do you think that's, that's from organic growth, new fund launches versus you know, perhaps acquisitions? Uh, we've seen you know, the space being quite active as of late. Yeah, Gary, maybe I'll take that first and then I'll give it to Adrian. But I think it's going to be a combination of both um, with existing partners in terms of incremental funds as well as uh, new ventures into new asset classes. So, um, and, and that number, frankly, doesn't give us any pause. I think we can achieve that because it's a combination of things. Yeah, the only thing I'll add, Gary, is I think if you, if you have a look at um, the, the um, transaction that we announced today along with our internal plans for growth in that area, we're on track to meet that, uh, that target that we set. Okay, great. And then uh, my second group of questions, uh, I guess, related to, to DSC, maybe for, for Judy, if she's on the line, just want to explore the DSC ban in fiscal 22 a bit. Uh, I get the mechanics and, and, and all, you know, the, the risk in my view is the impact on sales. Uh, my understanding is that majority of the sales is going through your strategic partner. You know, how confident are you you'll be able to convert that DSC sales into other, other products, like other no-load products, um, given the changes in how the advisors are, are compensated? And uh, I have a follow-up. Yeah, Gary, it's Kevin. I'll, I'll hand it to Judy in a second. But, you know, for a long time we've stated you know, we remain committed to the value of advice, right? And, We've been through various changes to business models and regulations over time, and you know we've always worked with our advisors uh, and the dealer community to adapt to that change. And I don't see this one as any differently. Um, I, I think we will all, as an industry, adapt to it um, and support our partners in that change. So maybe Judy, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, certainly the DSC ban is just one of so many regulatory changes that are happening for um, the dealer community, and I think. Uh, as we have worked with our partners, you know, we've launched different products with different fee schedules and fee arrangements, ETFs. Uh, we've obviously got our fee series for fee-based accounts, F series, I should say, um, Q series, et cetera. I mean, it goes on. And we're working very hard at making sure we're vehicle agnostic. And so we do anticipate, you know, to work with our partners um, and just transition their business uh, alongside with them. Okay. Great. Maybe uh, the other, the second part of that question is maybe for Adrian. Uh, so when I look at the earnings and cash flow impact, you know, give or take, you know, roughly 40 million of expenses and cash flow, 
related to the upfront DSC commissions. Um, you know, once once this is implemented in mid, I think it's 2022. You know, that cash expense is essentially gone. Um, you know, I know it winds down over seven-year schedule, but is that how I should think about the financial impact and the cash flow impact um, starting in 2022? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you'll notice that on our income statement year to date, we've got about $32 million of DSC payments. It's about $40 million annually. If we stop paying that, obviously that's going to uh, uh, bolster our EPS and, uh, and free cash flow. And as you correctly noted, uh, it, it will reverse over a seven-year time as trailers kind of migrate back to the level of front end. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. Our next question on the line comes from Mr. Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, just had a question on the uh, the wave front news from earlier this week. Just wondering if there's any numbers or ways that you like to kind of quantify the growth opportunity uh, with respect to this relationship. Hey, Jeff, it's Kevin. It's um, yeah, no, wave front is uh, you know Asia is probably one of the last growth markets, right? You think about the sizing of China's economy, uh, the middle classation of China, so and as well as Korea. So you know, for us, it's it's a small transaction that allows us to have some headway, or I should say, um, lead into um, an established distribution uh, that our partners have. So it's a small transaction. We're not disclosing the terms of it right now. But I think of it as optionality into the future, something that will take us a couple of years, but I think into a longer-term, uh, larger growth opportunity. And, again, it helps out in our AJFIQ suite um, where there's a growing interest in quant and in the, the ability to see the ETF business, certainly in both of those countries, start to pick up. So low-cost way to enter with um, our manufacturing uh, into what is established distribution. Okay. And then on the, on the SAF news, um, is, there, is there more detail you can provide? Like, if you do decide to exercise the option, like how much in capital might that consume? And, and if it sounds like you're going to be acquiring, if you do do it, like the, a number of the funds as opposed to the entity itself. And if that is correct... Um, anything you can kind of talk about in terms of number of funds, AUM, uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure, Jeff. So, um, yeah, we're not going to disclose the terms once uh, on exercise, but I can tell you that um, SAF today has about $600 million worth of AUM, so that will be part of the partnership. Um, and they have a pretty strong uh, pipeline right now for capital raising and also a, a very active deal pipeline. Um, so, we're, you know, we're pretty excited about that. Um, and the other thing to think about is that, you know, in our alter alternatives business, you know, we, we will make net new commitments to uh, support uh, growth opportunities such as SAF. But also keep in mind that, you know, with SAF, we were uh, the cornerstone investment in their first fund. We, we uh, committed $50 million to that fund. Uh, that fund's got a $20 million NAV, and we've actually already received – all of our capital back through distributions and monetizations. And we have an interest uh, in the carry and obviously we'll get uh, you know, further distributions as there's more monetization. So think about it as, uh, as more of a recycling of capital. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting aspect of our alternatives business in the sense that you know, as we, the, the platform gets bigger, um, as the funds uh, get, get larger in size, it takes a little bit less of our own capital to get them off the ground. And, you know, step back even even further from that. Our 
the objective for this business really is to earn a higher ratio of management fee profits relative to the earnings and capital we're committing on the LP side. Okay. Uh, and just my last question is, um, you're making, seem to be making good progress um, on the retail front on, on net flows. Um, obviously, the industry's done well, but is there any numbers you're able to give on uh, what September uh, looks so far this month? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll take that one, Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the trajectory that we've been um, seeing through Q3, which was very positive, we, we had saw an improvement of about 95%, as Kevin referenced uh, in his uh, opening comments, uh, quarter over quarter from 2020 to 2019. And so it, it's been very encouraging, and we're seeing the same trajectory going into September. Obviously, we feel pretty confident uh, with respect to our performance numbers and the key categories being global fixed income, sustainable, uh, great performance there, and we're seeing a high degree of activity and engagement with our advisors. And so uh, being in, in a pandemic, of course, uh, is making us somewhat cautious as we see the numbers rise. But, uh, you know, we're cautiously optimistic going into the, to the, the coming uh, last quarter of the year. Yeah, and I think, hey, Jeff, it's Kevin. I think, you know, September's tracking what we saw in the last two months. So I guess in the last two months, d does that mean it's, it's been positive since uh, months to date then? or We've been basically flat over the last two months. Um, okay. Positive in July, generally flat in August, and same trajectories uh, is what we're seeing into September. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question online comes from Mr. Tom McKinnon from BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Morning. Um, just with respect to the private alts, I think you still mentioned you've got another $61 million remaining to be committed um, uh, in terms of capital being invested in these, uh, what's the timing on that? Um, and, uh, um, and I assume you're going to be funding that with debt. Would that be, uh, the way to think of that as well? Yeah. Hey, hey Tom. It's it's, oh, hey, Adrian, I'll take maybe the first part ahead, of that. Sure. Maybe the you. Um, yeah, Hey Tom, that's right. Um, but those are committed into a, a bunch of funds. Um, expect them to be drawn over time and over time, probably, I'd say in the next two-ish kind of year frame on that remaining 60, maybe a little longer. But as Adrian said in the earlier call, what happens is you recycle things monetized along the way from the from those funds as well, especially the ones that are already invested and have been invested for a fair bit. So it's sort of a some come in, some come out issue. So I'm not sure uh, there's a big draw on the debt to fund that at this point. Maybe Adrian, maybe you've got thoughts on that. No, that's precisely it. I mean, we have $146 million invested in LPs, uh, and as Kevin rightly pointed out, that comes back to us over time, including some distributions. And, uh, you know, as these funds uh, mature, we also have an interest in the carry for the funds as well. So, uh, again, just reiterating the point that both Kevin and I have, have made now that um, it kind of depends on timing as to whether we need to use debt, but we're at a, we're at a pretty good spot now with uh, recycling of capital in that business. Um, okay, and maybe you can um, – you always talk about EBITDA before commissions. Do you think that's the best way of looking at uh, the value of AGF? Um, I mean, you've paid down all your debt, so it really doesn't do anything to the EBITDA before commissions. There's going to be a lot of noise associated with DSC band coming as well. So in your opinion, is EBITDA before commissions the best way of um, looking at AGF? Hey, Tom, uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, my answer is yes. <laughs> That's going to be the line that has the least uh, the least noise, so it's going to give you the, the truest picture, but I'll, I'll let uh, Kevin clean up a bit on that. 
think that's the earlier question uh, that Gary raised, right? Um, some of you guys value us on that, Tom, EBITDA before commissions. Um, and because of DSC today, that's probably right. Some of you guys are using EPS, um, and as DSC goes away, um, that may be cleaner. And so I, I think that's, uh, that's something where, you know, you guys are going to have to grapple with it, right? Um, we've looked at it as uh, EBITDA before commissions today, but that's going to be a big number when that rolls off, right, that DSC uh, headwind. So, um, I, yeah, I defer to you guys how you want to think about it, but um, it, we are going to be in a transition about how, how to value it, though. Thanks. Thank you. Once again, for any questions or follow-ups, star them one in your touchtone phone. Our next question online comes from Graham Writing from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Um, on the private credit fund, you know, uh, SAFs traditionally had a focus on you know energy, and I see they also have like metals and mining uh, fund as well. Is the private credit going to be you know on those two sectors? Uh, the fund that you're launching with them, or is it going to be more diversified across uh, a bunch of different industries? So uh, thanks, Graham. I'll start out here. Um, yeah, that was the, the genesis of the firm. Absolutely, was in energy, and they've done some some mining deals. They've also done deals in uh, financial services, and they've they have um, diversified out into other industries. So uh, you know, over time, their capabilities have have expanded. The teams expanded. Um, and I think you'll continue to see that um, because we do anticipate a fairly, fairly brisk demand from our clients for this type of product. So uh, they'll they'll continue to expand their their capabilities over time, and increase their capacity as an investment team. Okay. Um, and then just broadly speaking, with your alternatives platform, as you sort of target five billion by the by 2022. Like are you know is Instar and SAF are these the two partners that you're going to you're going to do, you know, you're going to grow with, or if you launch further products, is it potential that, you know, you bring in other alternative managers and do JVs or partnerships, you know, beyond these two? Yeah. Hey, hey Graham, it's Kevin. So I, I think it's a combination of our existing partners and, and new as we broaden out asset classes. And, you know, I think of the whole alternatives place as a spectrum, right? Um, you know, the private piece has been traditionally large institutions, very significant institutions um, and some family offices. Our liquid also will play into that, you know, things that are daily value, that hedge portfolios, and we've had an enormous amount of success with that launch. Um, between the U.S. and Canada, I think our liquid alts today are north of probably closing out at $600 million, uh, in the last year, year and a half. Uh, so I think of it, we have to broaden out that definition and think about it, really a spectrum of investors and products. And so I think it's a combination of existing partners and new partners in asset classes and a delivery that is not just private but also uh, liquid and maybe something in the middle that serves that private kind of investment with a liquidity buffer so um, but to take advantage of that distribution and I think also the, the growing need um, for different types of asset classes uh, for investors across that spectrum okay got it and that's that's 600 million in liquid also is that um, primarily your anti-beta product or what would make up that that 600 million and just to be clear that's that's not within your your 2.8 billion of private alts correct that's correct it, that's uh, primarily anti-beta and a couple of other uh, liquid alts in there but primarily anti-beta which as you know um, tries to give a negative correlation uh, to the market so um, with the big drawdown that we saw earlier in the year with that being you know market down 30 odd percent and that was up in the high teens 
it has gotten a lot of good um, feedback from investors. So, um, but the 2.8 does not include the liquid alt number. Okay, and the five billion that you talk about—that's uh, you're not including that, liquid alts in there, are you? That's correct. Okay, got it. My last question, if I could, just ETF flows in the quarter. Any uh, any color there? Uh, well, we've seen um, certainly year of quarter over quarter Q3 2019. We're from that time period, we're about 50% higher. So we now have our total suite is about 1.6 billion of AUM. Uh, the flows certainly, I think we've we've seen and we are sharing in the trend of flows going into ETFs as they're coming back into the market as money's coming back into the market. So uh, we are participating in that uh, in that trend as well. And as I mentioned, uh, we now sit at about 1.6 billion in our suite. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, Graham, what, what Judy just said. Um, what we saw in the market dislocate in March, we saw a lot of money come out of funds broadly. Uh, and when it came back, disproportionately, it came back into funds. We saw uh, the industry saw a decent couple of months in that uh, June kind of time frame. But if you look at ETF creations in the industry, way outpaced it. So I think you're going to see probably the ETF industry, um, whatever happened in March, has picked back up faster than the fund side, as I think maybe advisors are starting to get more, as we look at it, vehicle agnostic. Uh, here's a capability. How do I access it? You know, it's not may not be a fund in the future. It could be an ETF. could be a separate account. So, um, so the ETF business, I think, becomes more important uh, as we think about it. Great. That's it for me. Thanks. And we have no further questions at this time. I will now turn the call back to Mr. Basaraba for closing remarks. Thank you very much for joining us today. Our next earnings conference call will take place on January, January the 27th, 2021, when we review our results for Q4 2020. Details on the call will be posted on our website. Finally, an archive of the audio webcast of today's Q&A with supporting materials will be available in the Investor Relations section of our website. Good day, everyone. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.